This morning's scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's word. Thank you, Jen, for reading. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here today. Welcome. This is your first time with us at Stonebridge. And uh, for those who are here for the first time, we are in the... Uh, moving toward the end of Ephesians, and in particular, we today are looking at the second and third of a small section on relationships. And last week, Rick talked about the relationship between husband and wife, and today we're going to be looking at relationship between parent and child, and between boss or employer and employee. Now, you may be saying, wait, the text said slavery. Well, we are going to be talking about that. Much does need to be said about that, said about that in context of when this was written. Uh, but in the current context for us today, as you will see in a moment, it makes more sense for us to look at this from the standpoint of boss and employee. And so just a quick little outline for everybody this morning. Really, we're going to be looking at two things, and that is Christ in the relationships at home, and Christ in relationships in your work. Now, hopefully that covers everybody. No, not everybody's here. Not everybody here is a parent, and uh, everybody here is a child. <laughs> or at some point, not everybody here is in a work relationship, but hopefully one of these two relationships have something that really will uh, identify with you and where you are today. And so those are the two sets of relationships we're going to be working on today, all in 25 minutes. So we're going to give it our best shot on that. You've probably also noticed when Jen was reading that this is a very short passage. And so this is not going to be the be-all and end-all of what it means to be a good parent or to have a good relationship at work. Sorry. But this is also the beginning of chapter 6. And so in context, we know that there are five chapters preceding this that deal a lot with relationships in general. And so please know that what we've already heard will also go a long way toward helping in these two particular areas. So keep that in mind as we go forward this morning. So first of all, we're going to be looking at parent and child. And first, Paul speaks to children, so we're going to address them first. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, young people, if you're out here in the audience, and there are a few, it is good that you are here because it's clear from the context that Paul was not addressing adult children here. He was addressing young people. 
And he wanted this letter to be read in front of the entire church. So it's good that you're here. But I also want to challenge you because I know that the youth ministry here is set up so that the young people are encouraged to come first hour to corporate worship and then have their program second hour. So a little challenge to everybody this morning is I want to challenge you to consider if you have a teenager, a young person, in six and above, I want to, encourage, I want to challenge you to, to bring in and worship together with them first hour and then they have a program second hour. So if you're here and you're a young person today, I'm glad that you're here because Paul is speaking directly to you. And uh, his instructions for you are pretty simple. Obey. Yeah, and I know it sounds simple, but it's hard. I know it's hard, but just be thankful your parents actually have a lot more difficult task, which we're going to be looking at in just a minute. But for you, it's obey. Obey your parents. Well, why? What are the reasons? Kids always want to know why. Well, there's, that's a good question. Firstly, Paul tells us, because it's right. Now, I know, young people, you hate it when your parents say, when you ask them, well, why? And, and they say, because I said so. Well, sorry to break it to you, but that's what God is saying here. Paul is saying it's right because God said so. And he does so by referencing the fifth commandment there back in Exodus, that commandment to honor your father and mother. And that was literally verbatim the words of God in the, in the uh, Ten Commandments. And so, first of all, you're to obey because it is right. Because, you see, ultimately, the family is God's invention. And God has used the family, and he does use, he uses the structure of it, and he uses the authority of your parents, believe it or not, to help illustrate his authority over all of us and our need to obey him. Now, to show that Paul really meant that obedience here is to God and concerns the Lord, ultimately, he even writes it here in our passage, obey your parents in the Lord, in the Lord. So obey them not because just say your parents are an authority, it's not the main reason, and not even to get what you want. I know sometimes you obey for that reason, but the reason is clear here in our passage. Obey because Jesus asked you to obey. Obey because you're ultimately obeying him. You see, if a child honors and obeys their parents, there's a much more likely, there's a greater likelihood that they will be obedient to the Lord and have that same attitude of obedience. Whereas the opposite is also true. A child who disobeys his or her parents is more likely to have an attitude of disobedience which could carry over into their relationship with the Lord. Now, are there exceptions, particularly young people here? Well, yes. If a parent ever asks you to directly obey a command of God, then yes, you're within your rights to disobey But those are exceptions, and hopefully they're very rare. It also brings us to another question worth considering, and that is, how about adult parents? Should they then obey their parents in everything? Well, I believe the answer is no. And we see that in the distinction between obey and honor. In obey, God clearly, through Paul, is is speaking to young children. But the, the commandment in the Ten Commandments that is referenced here uses the word honor, and it's addressed to all children, young and adult. And in honor, that's that's a non-negotiable, but it does not say obey. And so, therefore, if you're a parent, for example, and you're wondering, should I obey my parents who are trying to tell me how to parent, my child? Then no, you're under no obligation to obey them. 
but you are under under obligation to honor them. Listen to what they have to say. Ultimately, the decision is yours in that example, but listen to what they have to say. And I know that it can be difficult for some of you to honor your parents. We have a wide variety here of experiences. Well, again, this, this is the command of the Lord. And so I would encourage, if that's you, study and think about your parents and, and find something, something that you can compliment them on, something, some way in which you can honor them. And very likely, when we do do that and we honor our parents, the other issues that we have oftentimes will be resolved in the process. So first of all, young people, you are to obey God because it is right. He also gives you another reason. Obey so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Here Paul is saying, as a general rule, obedience and honor foster self-discipline, which then turns to bring stability, which by nature would bring longevity and enjoyment in life. The flip side is also true. Disobedience brings more instability, which can result in a lack of um, discipline and a shortened life, and a life that is not good and lacks well-being. So, is Paul saying that every child who obeys, will lead a good and long life? I mean, he does say it's a promise, does he not? Well, he does reference promise, but he says it's the first commandment with a promise. And in context, I think it's important for us to realize that, again, he is referencing Exodus and the Ten Commandments. It's important for us to look at what that promise says. Exodus twenty twelve says, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord is, your, the Lord your God is giving you. Here he's referring to the promised land, and God is very faithful to deliver on that promise. He ushered the people into the land, and they lived there for generations. So what Paul is saying is no less true, though, today, that hundreds of years later, that principle is still valid. And it is valid for us here as well. And that is, it will generally go well for you, children, if you obey your parents in the Lord. So children in the audience here today, obey your parents in the Lord because it is right and because it is for your good. As hard as it is to believe, God uses your relationship with your parents to help build your relationship with him. So children, I'm done with you now. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Now it goes to parents. You have the more difficult task of the two. Author James Boyce uh, says this, I sometimes jokingly tell parents that they can get by with two children because they're matched in numbers and the parents are bigger. But when you have three, one is always getting away from you. In a sense, that is what is happening in a broader way today. We can handle one or two problems, but the home is beset by so many problems today that success at being good parents seems to be getting away from us. Now, before we dive exactly directly into Paul's instructions to us as parents, there's something that we can learn from the section we just left on children. First of all, is the importance of consistent discipline. God says it is good to obey in all things, and we need to insist that our children obey. I know it's easy sometimes to let them get away with it, but we need to insist that they obey. 
You see, to, to teach a child to obey you is to also teach a child to be obedient to the Lord. But when we allow a child to be disobedient, we are, in a sense, teaching them that disobedience is okay, and that will reflect on their relationship with the Lord. So in Paul's instructions then, here to parents, he gives us one negative and one positive for us in terms of how we parent our kids. So uh, first of all, let's look at Ephesians 6, chapter four, or excuse me, 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here, Paul gives us one thing as parents to do and one thing not to do. Uh, but before we break that down further, something else that is good for us to observe here in context. Notice that in verses 2 and 3, Paul's talking about both parents, mother and father. It could be that he included mothers in this because of the low status that women had in that culture at that time. And Paul was meaning to emphasize that, that no, mothers are very important to the raising of children. In that society, fathers exercised all authority in all things. So I believe that Paul may have been emphasizing the importance of mothers there in the home. But why then in verse 4 does he only focus on fathers? Again, just speculating, but a few thoughts come to mind. One, it could be because the fathers at that time did uh, were, were in charge of so much, and so he wanted to address them as head of household uh, individually. It could be that we fathers exasperate our children more regularly than, our, than the mothers do. That's certainly a possibility. <laughs> uh, or it could be, too, to, to note the importance of the dad in the home. Uh, in our society today, now over 50% of households uh, do not have a dad in the home across all the major racial groups in this country. And if you're a single mother here today, don't in any way think I'm not saying you can't be a good parent and the best parent you can for your child. Absolutely you can. What I'm talking to are fathers who are in the home right now. Stay there because your role is so important in the raising of your child. Something else that's important to notice here too is, is that, that we as parents are the ones who are commissioned to raise our kids. And uh, again, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's wrong to, to engage or utilize outside agencies to, to help in some way. But if that becomes the primary in, input to your child or raising of children, then we need to maybe take a step back and say, you know, what in my schedule is preventing me from having more time with my kids? Because God calls us here as parents to be the ones who primarily raise our children. So, finally, what not to do and then what to do. First, what not to do. Um, fathers, do not exasperate your children. So, what's the Bible saying? Dads, don't annoy your kids and instead teach them the Bible? I hope it's not saying annoy because I annoy my kids all the time and it's fun. <laughs> and you know what? They annoy me right back and they, they get great pleasure from that as well. <laughs> uh, but no, there's actually a lot more to this word than that. And I owe a lot to uh, theologian Brian Chappell for helping me to see what I believe Paul is really getting at here in context. Now, while the NIV, New International Version, renders this word exasperate, I think it's instructive for us to look at the Old Testament, and we'll see a different light shed on this word. In the Old Testament, this very same verse is read, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition 
of the Lord. Provoke not to wrath. Provoke not to wrath. What does this remind us of? Especially if you grew up with the KJV like I did. What does this remind us of? It reminds me of the Old Testament where someone is constantly being provoked to wrath. Who am I talking about? Yahweh, God, right? And 50 out of 57 times, he's being provoked to wrath by a particular people group. The Israelites. Yes. All over the Old Testament, we see that God is provoked to wrath because of the disobedience of his people. People who say, sure, God, we'll obey your law. But then they turn and do exactly the opposite of that. What Chapel, Brian Chapel concludes, and I believe he's right, is that Paul is saying here, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath by living contrary to the ways of the Lord. Instead, train and instruct them in those ways. Who of us here would hire a personal trainer who him or herself was out of shape? Of course not. We all look for a buff trainer, right? Because clearly not only does he know what he's talking about, but he also practices it. As you see, an exasperated child is the one who has a right to be upset with us when our parental actions conflict with our spiritual values. Now, we don't need to guess at which values Paul is referring to because he's just spent five chapters talking about them. Authority based on the example of Christ. Love patterned after the sacrifice of Christ and respect expressed out of reverence for Christ. These are the things that Paul says should reflect how we parent. So parents, are we hypocrites sometimes in using our authority? Sometimes I think we are. Do we sometimes throw a tantrum in order to stop a tantrum? Don't need to raise your hand. You know who I'm talking to. I know who I'm talking to. (laughs) Do we push for the child's success to affirm our worth? Or do we maybe punish the child because we have been embarrassed? I love the line from the movie The Joy Luck Club where the mother is always going around bragging about the chess exploits of her chess champion daughter. And finally, the daughter, a little nine-year-old, has had enough. And she comes to the mother and she says, why do you have to use me to show off? If you want to show off, then why don't you learn to play chess? (laughs) It's a fair question. (laughs) I love it. See, the, the home that rules by guilt undermines biblical obedience. Now, what does this all boil down to? And this may be the main takeaway I want for you guys today. What it boils down to is that our greatest failing, for those of us who are parents, usually springs from our own insecurities. As Tim preached so eloquently a few weeks ago, the constant pursuit of mindness, me, me meanness, the constant pursuit of mindness in our kids or in someone else, instead of the constant pursuit of otherness in them. The good news, though, parents, of the gospel is this, that our security in our relationship with God can free us to then parent for our children's good rather than for our own. The pursuing, then, as Tim said, of that otherness in them. 
Now, I know I've stepped on a lot of toes here today, including my own. And in the first service, my son was sitting there in front of me, and I apologized to him. I want to encourage you parents who don't walk on water, that would be all of you, to, to go and, and humble yourself. And maybe, maybe there's something you need to apologize to your kids. And maybe use that as a teaching opportunity of how Christ has forgiven you and ask them for their forgiveness. But don't fret. Don't get down because you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, you're not going to do anything I just talked about on your own power. But if you have the Holy Spirit, He empowers you to be able to do these things. So now, what do we do? We've been told don't exasperate our kids, don't provoke them to wrath by living as hypocrites. Now what do we do? Something positive that that Paul calls us to do here. He calls us to Bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And once again, I prefer the King James Version because it uses the words nurture and admonition. And I prefer it simply because those two are more easily distinguishable, nurture and admonition. You see, nurture has more of a positive pressure associated to it for kids, modeling, teaching, encouraging the children to follow biblical principles and godly patterns of life while admonish has more of a negative force to it. It's, it's, it's good, but it's more of a pushback in orientation to admonishing, warning them, dis- disciplining them when their behavior is inconsistent with godliness. But both are important. Admonishing and nurturing are both needed in balance for proper parenting. The essence, you guys, of parental love is recognizing that you and I as parents are dispensers of God's grace into our children's lives. And that when we do that, we help to create a life that knows and honors God. See, children learn about God's character through how we respond to them when they're good as well as how we respond to them when they're disobedient. Brian Chappell sums it up very well for this section on on parents and on parents and children. He says this, Our parenting must remain consistent with our understanding of the grace God has extended to us. If we do not have a grip on grace, we will not have the courage to discipline. But if grace has no grip on us, there will be no constraint to our discipline. So, wow, parenting, not an easy endeavor. But we are out of the frying pan into the fire because our next section is potentially even more challenging. (laughs) But it doesn't have to be. We're done with parenting. Moving on to today, contextually, the relationship between boss and employee. Now again, what Jen read earlier today, the verses 5 to 9, refer to the relationship between slave and master. And so we can't go any further without addressing that. A family member of mine, not my direct family, but uh, a cousin, uses this rationale as one of the main reasons he is skeptical of the claims of Christ. I have little interest in a religion that promotes or excuses slavery, he reasons. And if that were in fact true, I would hope we would all have a problem with Christianity. The fact is, though, that what is termed slavery here in this passage, which was the first century Roman Empire, is more along the lines of indentured servitude. 
Slavery for a period of time, many times for the working off of a debt. And I know it sounds crazy, but many in this society at the time actually volunteered to become slaves rather than have to endure life and the hardships of life on their own. Unlike the African slave trade in the Americas between the 17th and 19th century, unlike that slavery that we're mostly familiar with, slavery as understood here was not due to race and it was not for life. Race didn't play a factor and it was not for life. And while there was a legal distinction between slave and master, the slaves actually adopted, in a sense, the societal status level of the master. And when slaves were freed, many actually went on to do quite well. So as Tim Keller says in a sermon that he preached on this topic, the slaves of the world unite cry would have fallen probably on deaf ears at this particular time. So it's, it's unreasonable of us to expect that the abolition of slavery would have been a primary focus of Christians at this time. Now, let me also say that despite the fact that servitude in this day and age was much different than the African slave trade with which we are mostly familiar, it would be wrong to soft-pedal it. Because, you see, not all slaves chose that life. Some were captured in battle, in war, and were forced to be slaves when they returned. And some masters did treat their slaves very harshly. In fact, we know this clearly because Paul in our passage today commands masters not to threaten their slaves. Even under the conditions described, slavery does not in any way constitute the God-ordained way that humans are supposed to relate to one another. And so do not think in any way that this passage affirms slavery as naturally valid or divinely mandated. It simply does not. We know this also because the same author, Paul, wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 that people, he encouraged people not to become slaves. And to those, he said, who could get out of it, he encouraged them to get out of it. So hopefully this little excursus on this word will prevent that little word, that one word, from blinding us to some very, very good application points here that we see in, in this section of, of the passage. And we're referring it to it today because I think the closest relationship to today is going to be boss-employee and work relationships. And so that's the way we're going to deal with it going forward. Um, Christ in our work relationships. So first of all, we see one of the, the first points here in, in verse 5. Paul writes, Obey your bosses. I've taken the liberty of, of contextualizing it. Obey your bosses with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. First point I want to make here about this section regarding our work relationships, all work is a divine calling. All work is a divine calling. Well, not mine, you might say. Even my job? Yes, even your job. Remember, Paul's addressing domestic servants here in this context. So yes, all work, even yours, is a divine calling. As Rick preached in the past, live for an audience of one. Live for an audience of one. And obeying your boss here also harkens back to what we learned about children. God uses our work relationships with those over us in a way to nurture our relationship with him. Because see, if we are willing to cut corners at work or steal from the company or not put in an honest day's work for our earthly boss, is it not reasonable to think 
that that might also impact our attitude toward our ultimate authority, God himself. It also says here that God requires working wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And if God is your ultimate authority, he always deserves a good day's work. Now, this is very liberating news. Why? Because it means when you go to work tomorrow, it's not just that extremely fallen human being, otherwise known as your boss that you're working for. It's God himself. It's also liberating in that, in a practical sense, in that when you do these things, when you respect and obey your boss at work, when you do your work wholeheartedly, necessarily that is going to impact you, probably even in a material sense. It'll impact the atmosphere at work, and it will probably impact you in how you outshine your, your, your fellow workers. And so there are many things that we can learn about a work relationship here from this passage. But principally, I want to focus on the fact that all work is, is divine calling. And we need to work at it with all our heart for God. Now, there's not any time here to go any depth to any depth regarding any bosses here in our audience, but the word is clear. Bosses, don't lord your authority over your employees because, as the end of the, the passage says, you're no better than they are. <laughs> you're equal with them in the eyes of God. So treat them fairly. Now, I hope that as we leave this place today, that we don't just look at these passages that we've talked about and see them just as a glorified self-help seminar. Because if we do that, then we're missing the main thrust of this passage, I believe. Tim preached a few weeks ago that Paul always roots his commands in Christ. And that's exactly what he does here. You see, eight times in these nine verses, God is referenced by Paul here. It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. Just as Rick said last Sunday, our human marriage is supposed to point to something greater. And likewise, our parent-child and work relationships should also point us to something greater. So let our parent-child relationship point us to the father-son relationship. The son, Jesus Christ, here on the color cover of your bulletin, we have this artwork here, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The son saying to the father, not my will, but thy will be done. Let what we talked about today in our parental relationships point us to that father that he obeyed. And the father who has adopted you and me as his sons and daughters, who nurtures and admonishes us, but does it for our good and for his glory. He does not exasperate us by failing to live up to his promises. No, his promises and his faithfulness are sure. Let our work relationships point us to the master who does not threaten us, but instead loves us as his own children. And let it remind us not to obey God just to gain favor in his eyes because, brothers and sisters, we cannot gain any more favor in his eyes than we already have. He already gave us everything in his son. And lastly, let this work relationship point us to the master, Jesus, who is the greatest irony in all of human history, who chose to die the death of a slave on a cross to set we who were in slavery to sin free. If we don't ultimately end up here, you guys, then everything we just talked about is just glorified self-help. 
Here's the bottom line. Brian Chapel, one more time. All expressions of authority are to reflect the character of our Savior. Leadership in the home and workplace should lead us to a greater dependence on Jesus and to a greater appreciation of him. By using our authority for the good of others, we discover our own most noble purposes and are drawn most closely to the divine nature. If we do that, brothers and sisters, the watching world will see the beauty of our Savior. And that's where I want to end today. Because you see, the Roman world was watching at this time. Paul's advice to parents in our passage today was actually very radical in those days. In that world, infanticide was not only legal, but was applauded. The killing of a Roman was murder, but somehow in a sick, twisted way, it was commonly held in Rome that killing one's own children could be an act of beauty. Through a higher view of children and of life and of passages like this that we looked at today, it was the early Christians that ultimately brought an end to infanticide. And the Christian church was also at the forefront of instituting child labor laws in, most, in more recent times. Now, Paul's commands to masters and slaves here was even more radical. Now, why didn't Paul outright condemn slavery or work to abolish it? Well, we talked about that a little bit before, but you know what? He actually may have. He actually may have. Because I believe he planted seeds here today, showing the equality in the eyes of God between slaves and masters. We see that in the book of Philemon as well. Radical seeds, radical seeds that have borne an amazing amount of fruit as God has used the teachings of Scripture to abolish slavery many places around the world. See, Christians were the first people in history to systematically oppose slavery. Christians would buy slaves just simply to set them free. Christianity was also at the forefront, the beginning of the movement in this country to free the slaves. And the same can be said of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the church-led overthrow of segregation not too long ago. So why do I mention this? I mention it because there are not enough negative words in the English language to describe this presidential election. Am I right? <laughs> I mention it because the radical seeds that we read about here today are just as radical in our day and age as they were then. It has been correctly stated that politics flows downstream from culture. We are living in a society, and I don't need to tell you this, that has betrayed mightily the Lord and has strayed from his ways. And no politician is going to change that. Now, not saying stay home. Don't misrepresent what I'm saying. Do your research. Vote for candidates that share our values as believers because our elected officials do play a very God-ordained role in our society. What I am saying is that we underestimate the ability of God the impact of God through relationships lived in a godly manner on our culture and our society. So when our culture sees us living godly relationships as husband and wife, godly relationships as parents and children, godly relationships at work, those relationships God can use to bring great change, not just to our households, but to our nation. And may he do so. He's done so in the past he could do so again. The world is watching. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for this meat that you've given us to chew on today. And God, I pray, help us as parents to follow it and obey it. Help us to remember that your grace is sufficient for us when we forget or when we mess up. Father, help us as we go into our work environments, many of them less than optimal, to remember, God, to do our work for you, to remember that all work is God-ordained. And God, help us to not forget the ultimate example of a good, good father to us, his children, of a master who humbled himself to become a slave, died the death of a slave on a cross that we might be free. Lord, may that be at the forefront of our minds as we leave this day. Empower us now to do your will in regard to what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen.